The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So God, thanks for thanks for meeting us with your spirit and worship this morning, reminding us of your promises to hold us fast, to be with us in the storm, that we're going to dance with you someday soon when we see you face to face. We love you. And we confess today, like every day, like every Sunday we've ever gathered, that we need your help. We need your spirit to open our eyes to see what we need to see. We need you to come and convict us and comfort us and restore us. So Lord, we are falling before you asking for your help and we know that you love your people and you love your glory more than we ever could imagine loving it. And so we have bold confidence that you're going to come and work among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are uh, moments in life that mark you. You know what I mean when I say that? There are moments in life that mark you. You've felt them. You can remember where you were sitting. You remember kind of the sounds of the room. You remember who you were talking to exactly where you were. Um, there's happy moments like that. There's happy moments that have marked me as a dad and a husband and a, and a pastor. And there's sad moments that have marked me as a dad and as a husband and as a pastor. And this past Monday, I had one of those moments right in the, in the parking lot of Farmington High School after dropping Iris off for farm camp. <laughs> And uh, I spoke with my friend about his soon-to-come resignation. And I realized, as I was sitting there, I had actually, you know, once you've had a few of those moments, you realize this is going to mark me. This moment's going to mark me in a new kind of way. And as I know our friendship isn't up for grabs, but we'll no longer labor uh, side by side in quite the same way I hoped we would for the next few decades. And frankly, the whole thing just makes me really sad. Um... Why am I bringing this up for, for today? Um, three reasons. One, it's the rea- reality of where we are in this moment, and it's good to acknowledge it. It's just where we are, and uh, to hide from it or not talk about it doesn't help us at all. Number two, and I think it's relevant for our text, because as we've been going through Acts, it's easy to read through Acts and see all of the struggles, you know, the internal church struggles, not to mention if you go to the epistles, And look at all the internal church struggles there. Read about all the persecution. Read about all the brokenness. And kind of forget how real it is. Just forget how unbelievably real and painful these situations actually would have been. But as we read about a mob today or conflict between believers, like a couple weeks ago, Pastor Daniel preached about Paul and, and Barnabas. As we read about sickness and health struggles... I think as we read, we should let it land on us. Actually land on us. In other words, the book of Acts, like sometimes how we think about it, is as if the book of Acts was some shiny road of uninterrupted triumph. 
But that's not what we've seen in the book of Acts. Right? These struggles really happened and really hurt. Which leads me to the third reason I'm bringing it up. As I let the reality of all that this week was settle, and as I didn't kind of run from the pain or try to numb the pain or avoid the pain, but actually leaned into the pain of my heart with friends and those closest, closest to me, the preciousness of the gospel grew to me. And I think that's what these, these situations, these struggles, these pains are meant to do. And that's what we're meant to see in the book of Acts, that the pain and the struggles and the hurt, like they're real and they're massive, and yet it points us to the preciousness of the gospel. So why did that happen? Well, because in spite of the turmoil of the past year of pastoring and how this kind of felt like a, a punch to the gut on top of all of that, despite all of that, my sins are still forgiven by Jesus. Your sins are still forgiven by Jesus. My ultimate hope is still secure. Co- completely secure. I just tried to, to rest in that this week. Like It's completely secure. Nothing is up for grabs eternally. My eternal fellowship with other believers, those that stay and those that have left, not up for grabs. <laughs> like, we will be around the throne with them worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's not up for grabs at all. It's not goodbye. It's not the end. We're going to have eternity to go, we all messed up a bunch, but man, isn't Jesus worthy? Wasn't He faithful? How He got us here? And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to comfort us and dwell in us until we go to dwell with Jesus. So the point is, as we read through Acts and see the preaching of the Word and the persecution and pain that comes, we should see the providence of God in the mess. He is putting each of us exactly where He wants us to refine us from all earthly comforts refresh us in the rest of Jesus alone, and then from that rest, redeploy a people. Redeploy a people that says to the world and means it, there is one place of rest. Only one. There is one sturdy hope. There is one Savior, one King, one friend that will never fail us and will surely complete the good work He started in us in His church. And that only comes when you actually need to believe it. And that's one of the things God's doing. So I'm here with you today, self-family, to look the sorrows of this life right in the eyes, to not run away from them, and let them mold us. Let them shape us. Let them refine us. Let them refresh us in Jesus. And then let them redeploy us to our neighbors and to the nations. And what we're going to do today, as a people, as we gather is what we will continue to do week after week as long as I'm here, go to the Word, humble ourselves under the Word, and say, God, speak to us. We need you. So let's dive in and look at this text. We're actually going to just start by tying up a loose end in chapter 16 that we didn't quite get to last week in verses 35 to 40, which we read last week. And let me remind you what we saw last week as we walked through Acts 16. What we saw is the gospel saved and shaped 
a wealthy fashion executive with homes in two cities, right? We said this is the kind of woman today who'd have a home in New York and a home in L.A., and the gospel moves in and says all those earthly comforts are nothing compared to me. And then we saw the gospel save and shape a slave girl oppressed by her owners for gain. She had no home. She was a slave and oppressed by Satan for his purposes. And the gospel comes in and breaks the power of Satan and breaks the power of oppression. And then we have a hardened jailer whose heart was softened by the gospel. The one who had inflicted the worst pain and put them in the worst place was the one now washing their wounds. We just saw the gospels rush into different circumstances and different people and conquer and win by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we left them last week, we left them sharing a meal and rejoicing in the saving work of Jesus. Jailer and prisoner, Jew and Gentile, sharing a meal saying, isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't He amazing? Well, soon after that, in point number one here, the magistrates that had ordered them to be jailed sent word to let them go. And so the, the jailer comes and says, hey guys, you guys can leave now. They've said to let you go. But in verse 37, Paul refuses to go quietly, but instead says, verse 37, chapter 16, they have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. You've got to love Paul, don't you? (laughs) Well, the magistrates hear this, and it says they're afraid because they didn't know. Someone forgot to tell them, right? Mobs aren't super great at relaying accurate information. So the mob didn't exactly tell them, hey, by the way, they're also Roman citizens. They said, hey, there's some weird religious people. They're stirring things up. Would you take care of them? So they thought they were getting in good with the people and just making a point to some weird religious folk. But they had not treated them or given them the due process of Roman citizens. Now this was a big deal, especially when you pride yourselves on being a Roman colony. Right? Like, man, like we do everything like Rome. We're awesome. That's our identity. And here you have just messed it all up. You didn't give them due process. You threw them in jail, the worst part of jail. You beat them. And so they go, and they apologize, and they ask them to leave so as not to stir up any more trouble. And Paul and his companions go and visit Lydia once more. It says they encourage the brothers, and then they do leave. Now, why not just go in peace? Why not just say, thank you, uh, we're going to go. Is he just rubbing it in the face of the rulers? Is he spiteful? I don't think so. I think it's bigger than that. I think this is a strategic moment for Paul. He's setting a precedent. As they will continue going on their travels, he's maintaining the the integrity of the gospel here, the integrity of the gospel message. He wants it to be known that they were unlawfully imprisoned. In other words, they weren't criminals inciting an uproar. They were citizens who had a right due to due process and didn't receive it. So as they went on, what this would do is it would grant the gospel integrity in the cities to come. They would hear about this and say, remember, they're Roman citizens. Remember, they have rights here. And what it would do is it would maintain the integrity of the gospel in this city 
where they were going to leave believers behind in a church was now planted. It was earning them a little space in this city as well. So Paul says no and goes out a little bit louder than they would have liked for the sake of gospel integrity. Point number two, the mob and the incitement of the gospel in verses 1 to 15. So they head from Philippi to Thessalonica in verses 1 to 9. And Paul heads into the synagogue of the Jews for three Sabbath days, as was his custom, and he reasons with them from the Scriptures. What was he reasoning about? It tells us here in the next few verses. It says he was explaining and proving that the Messiah they were longing for and hoping for needed to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jewish hope was this expectation of a Messiah, and he just goes there right with them. That's what we've seen him do every single time he's entered a synagogue. Just go to their scriptures, make a case from their scriptures, and say, do you get it? Do you see it? You've been missing it, but here he is. He probably is going to passages like Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Hear resurrection. He's going to see it. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Death, suffering, and resurrection. Right from their Old Testament Scriptures. He talks to them about that, the life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and he's saying, the one you're looking for has come. His name is Jesus. You can have salvation in his name alone. He is the king in the line of David, Psalm 110. He is the root of Jesse that springs up to bring new life to you, Isaiah 11. He is the lion of Judah, Genesis 49. He's the suffering servant, Isaiah 11. 53, and he is alive and reigning and working even now by his spirit. That's the message when he goes into the synagogues, reasoning, explaining, proving to them. It's a case for us to know our Bibles, (laughs) to know our King as we go to him in his word. Well, in verse 4, some of them join him. It says some Jews, some devout Greeks, and some leading women. It's just interesting to note Luke, the author of Acts, is always highlighting the diversity of people the gospel saves. He just wants us to see this is for everyone. The gospel is not preferential. It saves and it seeks the lost, lost in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different places, all kinds of different peoples. But of course, as we've seen, if you can't write the story yet, you haven't been listening, the Jews are jealous again. Right? As, as always happens. And in verses 5 to 9, they stir up a mob of the city and go looking for them to hurt them. It says they can't find them, but they find the leader of the synagogue, who it seems has been saved by the gospel. And notice immediately, kind of not as loudly in this text, but immediately that he has been changed and shaped to show hospitality to them. He's been saved by the gospel, and now they're staying with him, housed by him. And because of his association with them, they drag him out to the city. Now, we don't know if they beat him or not. It simply says they attacked the house of Jason, which does not sound pleasant no matter what it looked like. They tell the rulers about these men, that these men have turned the world upside down. They've proclaimed that there's another king named Jesus. Well, we know 
We've seen over and over again in this text of Acts that these Jews don't really care about honoring Caesar. Right? This is the game. <laughs> it's a manipulation. It's a, it's a tactic. All they want is to stay in their place of power and prestige and hold on to all their little spaces of influence. They're jealous. It tells us they're jealous. They want these witnesses of Jesus out so they can maintain their place. And as we go through Acts, we should not have this miss our minds and our hearts in the day and age we live in that we would be careful not to find ourselves in the angry mob. There are so many angry mobs. There are secular angry mobs. Let's acknowledge it and lament it. There are Christian angry mobs. Let's acknowledge it and let's lament it. We could find that our defending what seems good and right could really just be our protecting our own rights and place and not accord with the gospel at all. This brother, the synagogue leader, was saved and shaped by the gospel to offer hospitality, knowing it could bring him harm, and then to suffer for Jesus even when it was costly, and those in his own religious tribe ganged up on him and brought him to ruin. Oh, that we would follow in those kinds of costly footsteps rather than the mob kind of costly footsteps. They take some money from them, kind of a fee for causing trouble, and they let them go. And the brothers, in verse 10, smuggle Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And what do they do in Berea? They go to the synagogue again. They treasure Jesus so much that they're just undeterred by the prospect of suffering, and they again proclaim the word of God about Jesus in this synagogue in Berea. And it says that these Bereans were no, more noble than the Thessalonians. They searched the word daily to see if these things are so. And many of them, by their earnest searching the Scriptures, the Spirit comes and brings them life. Isn't this a word for us? This is just a word about the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The Gospel is the power of God to salvation. The Word of God is living and active What if we just took the simple step of getting our neighbors together and opening the Bible with them? (laughs) Say, hey, have you ever read the Bible? I love you. We've shoveled our driveways together. We've had cookouts together. right? We've we've played Frisbee together. We've played basketball together. We've done all these things together. This is really important to me. Would you just be willing to read the Bible with me once in a while? Try it. Just open the Word and let it have its effect that the Holy Spirit would work and save. Let's grow this place, this South Campus, by conversions through the Gospel, not the typical American church hopping. People like this issue or this program, let's preach the Gospel and grow by conversions. The Gospel keeps running in Acts and saving by the power of the Spirit. That's how it works today. Let's turn the suburbs upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the Jews hear about it. Can't fault these guys for their intensity. I mean, they are after it all the time. They come and they stir up the crowds again. The brothers send Paul off again and keep ministering and leave Timothy and Silas. Likely, Timothy and Silas are kind of staying here for a little while and trying to strengthen this little baby church. I mean, can you imagine being a church? I mean, you get saved, you hear this new message, the Spirit opens your eyes, you're gathering together as a church, and what do you see right away? Just persecution. <laughs> right? You'd be pretty quick have to decide, is Jesus real or not? And so Timothy and Silas stay behind to encourage them, to strengthen them. 
And Paul tells them to join quickly when they can. And his gospel ambition keeps him boldly going forth and proclaiming the gospel even as the Jews' selfish ambition has them continue to seek their own interests and not the interests of Christ. And we keep saying it, but this is the story of Christianity. This is just how it happens and how it works. King Jesus keeps sending witnesses for the sake of His name. Some receive the Gospel and move from death to life and we rejoice and some reject the Gospel and even try to hurt those who proclaim it and we lament. But those who have been saved keep going because they count all else as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And they want to see others coming into this abundant life of Jesus with them as they seek the interests of Christ. I'm just praying that we would tell people about Jesus as we read through the book of Acts. And when I say that, I mean actually talk to them. Dave, give us a practical application. Talk to someone about Jesus. Pray for your neighbors. Walk through your neighborhoods and get to know their names and pray for them and plead for them and talk to them. Love them enough to tell them about Jesus. Right? Let's just do it. Let's just see what happens. Go, well, is, is Acts really prescriptive or descriptive? Yeah, both. And I don't know, but what I'd like is for us to talk about Jesus and pray as much as they didn't see what happens. Let's just do it and just talk about Jesus and maybe God would turn the suburbs upside down. Point number three, the marketplace and the inquiry of the gospel. In verses 16 to 34, we have Paul hanging out in Athens waiting for his friends to catch up. And he is walking around the city and his spirit is provoked as he sees all their idols. Now notice, as his spirit is provoked, he doesn't go and post angrily on Facebook right away about it. I mean that. My goodness. So what he does, what does he do? Let's learn. What does he do when his spirit is provoked by the idols of the age? He goes to the synagogue to reason with the gospel. Right? Like he always does explain and prove that Jesus was the Christ. Then he goes to the marketplace in a place called the Areopagus. And what does he do there? He speaks with Epicureans and Stoics. Who are these people? I'll just give you a really quick summary. Epicureans believe the point of life was to find pleasure, but the way to do that was just in avoiding pain, avoiding conflict, and living simple lives. So they would have definitely been off Facebook. Right? They, they were secluded, sitting in a garden quietly, just trying to avoid pain. That's what they thought pleasure was, this moderate path towards pleasure. Well, the Stoics, and they thought God was far off and far off from humans and uninterested in human affairs. Well, the Stoics thought God was in everything. They were pantheists. God's everywhere and he's angry. <laughs> Therefore, we better be really moral, really virtuous. That's the key to life. God's not transcendent or all-powerful, but He is angry and He will hurt us if we don't live virtuous. So Paul gets to this place and they ask him, tell us about this new teaching. 
And it's this place where they're, they're asking for teaching, but they don't really want their lives to be impacted by it. They're not ready for what's coming. Because verse 21 says, This is a place where Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, you've got this kind of pluralism. right? Who, who knows what's really true? Maybe it's this idea of gods that are distant and we just try to avoid pain. Maybe it's this idea that the gods are everywhere and we try to earn our way by virtue so they don't hurt us. Maybe it's something else. We just want to talk all the time. Just put our opinions out there, express ourselves. Not many things change. Nothing's new under the sun. We live in a kind of pluralistic world ourselves with all sorts of things serving as gods. We could name a few in our day. Uh, Maybe it's sexuality. You are your sexuality, and that's a God. Maybe it's self-expression, right? I just should say whatever I want whenever I want to. That's the truest and highest form of good. Or maybe it's comfort and self-gratification in the suburbs. just want to be comfortable and avoid pain and shut my garage door and get behind my fence, just stay away, bad things. Maybe it's something else in your life. If you walk through our cities, we wouldn't find physical altars everywhere, but we live in a place that is very spiritual in a very perverted kind of way. Where we are the gods, and our pleasure and our comfort must be fed and protected just like these wooden altars had to be fed and protected. Well, Paul addresses them in verse 22 And it's interesting, he preaches a little different message than he normally does to the Jews. He preaches a God who's transcendent in His creation, in His rule, in His reign, and yet imminent in His nearness to mankind. This doesn't fit either the Epicurean or the Stoic philosophy. He looks and he's walking and he notices that an altar to the unknown God. Now you're wondering, like, why do they have an altar to an unknown God? It's because they thought the gods were everywhere. And if they missed one that they didn't know about, he might be angry. Right? So this God showed up in their city and was like, where, where am I? You're not worshiping me. They're like, that's you. Right? You're, the, you're the unknown one. Just tell us your name. We'll put it on there quick. Right? So they're, they're nervous. This is the people nervous about what are the gods going to do? Just filled with all these ideas. And he wants to tell them that there is a God they should fear. There is a God they need to know that they don't know yet. He wants to tell them the name of this unknown God, and it's a God who is different from all of their ideas and all of their idols. So who is this God? Paul says he's the one who made the world. He made the world and everything in it. He's the one who not only made the world, but rules over the world as Lord. He doesn't dwell in your little temples. He doesn't need to be served by you or washed by you or fed by you. He's the one that gives life and gives breath and gives everything. You're going to go wash and feed and care for your little idols? You've got a God who created you and sustained you and every breath you take is from His hands. He's not like silver or stone, some kind of art created by us in our huge human imaginations. Rather, He is The Creator doesn't need anything from us, doesn't need our service. He made creation. He made mankind. And not only did He make mankind, but He determined where they would live and how long they would live. You think you're at the Areopagus by your own choice? 
not according to God. So he's transcendent, creator, Lord, but very intimate. In him we move and live and have our being. He's not far from us. In other words, Paul is looking at these idols provoked for the souls of those around him and for the glory of God and saying, why would you settle for these little ideas? These little gods. Why would you settle for them? Why would you serve something that makes you carve it and care for it? When you could serve a God who formed you and cares for you, why would you spend your time feeding and defending and protecting your little idols when you could have a God who feeds and defends and cares for you? He's offering them something better. Not posting angry things about how stupid they are. He's offering them something better in this God. South Campus, where do we feed and protect our idols of lust and anger and bitterness and selfishness, right? I mean, even just think of something that seems as small as bitterness. Think of all the mind games you have to play to to feed it, care for it, and protect it, right? Like, you know what's wrong, but you're like, but they're so bad, right? You protect it, and and you think about it more, and you feed this little idol, and all of a sudden you're serving an idol you've made with your own hands. That's all of sin, and we all do it. Why do we do it? Isn't it wearying to spend time on those things? There's no, there's no rest there. Why do we work so hard to maintain our, our comfort and our convenience and our power and our popularity? I mean, have they ever delivered on their promises to you? Have you ever had your eyes open to your bitterness, your selfishness, and your lust? I mean, like, man, I'm glad I spent the last six months doing that. Just refreshing. I just feel so encouraged. But we just keep doing it and hiding it and feeding it and protecting it. What about your neighbors around you? If you've got eyes to see, can't you see them working so hard to protect and feed their idols? Can't you point them to something that's so much better and will actually satisfy them eternally? Well, in verse 30, Paul says, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now in Jesus He is no longer overlooking them, but calling all people to repent, to turn from those things and walk towards Jesus. No one can avoid the judgment that's coming. Right? You're an Epicurean who's huddled up in your garden off Facebook, not talking about politics, avoiding pain. This is really bad news. Judgment's coming. You're a Stoic who thinks God's kind of in everything. You're just kind of doing your best. Like, can I be virtuous enough? And you're saying there's a standard of righteousness you can never meet. Judgment's coming. This is really bad news for you. He, he, he's putting them on the spot here and making it plain. You will either be found to be covered in the righteousness of Christ as made plain by His death and resurrection, or you will be found judged by His righteousness for worship of other things and despising the glory of God. That's really how urgent the need is. That's really the reality of your neighbors today. Jesus is coming back soon. We will be judged by His perfect righteousness. Do you feel the desperation for your neighbors and the nations? 
does it consume some of your thoughts and some of your prayer life that righteous judgment is coming and there are people who don't yet know Him? The death of Jesus pays for our sinful ignorance, praise God, and the resurrection of Jesus proves He was who He said He was. And in repentance, we turn from those little idols of our lives and turn to Jesus as their source of joy and life and satisfaction and salvation, and we just keep repenting. He is transcendent and He is imminent. He is going to come again to judge the world. And earlier in Acts, we saw that we are to repent that times of refreshing may come. So I'll just say it to you if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, and I'll say it to you if you have already trusted in Jesus. Today is as good a day as any day to repent and walk into the refreshment of Jesus as we gladly turn to Him. Today's as good a day as any day. Whatever the thing is that you've been hiding or holding or running from, today is as good as any day to repent. Today is as good as any day to begin praying for your neighbors and the nation as they worship the idols of this life and begin to ask the Lord to give you opportunities to speak of repentance in Jesus and eternal life in Him. Today is the day of salvation. Today is as good as any day. Right now, just start praying. Start repenting. Just like Paul said to these Athenians in the Areopagus, I know the true God you're looking for. So we can say to our neighbors, I know the true God you're looking for. I've met Him. He's changed me. He never leaves me or forsakes me. He's forgiven me. He's a solid place of joy and rest. Would you come to Jesus with me? And as always in the story, some believe in this story and some mock. Just get your heart ready for that. And keep talking about Jesus, right? First Corinthians has this paradigm. The world's just going to think we're, we're foolish and weak. That's okay. We just keep proclaiming a, a Savior that looks foolish and weak, a King that's crucified for the forgiveness of sins. But be encouraged that for Dionysus and Damaris, they're born again to eternal life. We're going to be around the throne with them because the Gospel was proclaimed. The good news of Jesus was proclaimed and a new church was born and others believed with them. So the message of the gospel brings mocking, and the message of the gospel brings the miracle of eternal life. It's worth the risk. Application is quick. Just look at verses 26 to 27 with me. It says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. So I just want to end by speaking to two groups of people. Let me start with those of you who are in the room or who are watching from somewhere in your living room who have not yet trusted in Christ. I don't know what things in your life you're treating as if they can satisfy your soul's desires. I don't know. Maybe you're running after a career or a platform or prestige or popularity or security or just comfort. You just want a happy, comfortable, successful life. Is that so bad to want? Or maybe you're here and you're stuck in sin, addictions and ugliness in your private life no one knows about, and you just feel trapped and defeated. Well, in either case, if you're hearing this, God is not far from you. 
He's determined that you'd be where you are for as long as you are, even listening this morning, that you might feel your way towards Him. In Jesus, you can have forgiveness from sins, a joy that isn't circumstantial, and begin to find freedom from sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I've been praying that today would be the day you see His sovereignty in your life and you turn to Jesus. Say, I want Jesus. Now I want to talk to all you who have trusted in Jesus. So perhaps there's a situation in your life right now that you just would you'd love it to end. <laughs> you'd wish you weren't going through it. You'd say, why? How long, O oh Lord? I think you're kind of making an error on this one. You don't know how weak I am. You don't know how fragile I feel. You wish it would go away or end. And perhaps in some ways as a church we all feel this way a little bit. None of us exactly wants to be where we are. But would we not forget that God has determined our times and our boundaries and we are here in this place for this season for His sovereign reasons, one of which is that we as a people might find our way in deeper ways and find Him in deeper ways. He's working in this. Let's not lean away from His providence in our personal lives or our corporate family life together. Let's lean in. We need to learn all we can learn. We've got to learn all we can learn in this providence. Which we need to repent from all we can repent from in this providence. In hard times, we need to see all of Christ that we can see as He walks close to us. And in the midst of that, we can rejoice in the Gospel that has saved us. And the Savior and King that has died and rose again to forgive our sins and guarantee our eternal life. Let's be refined in Jesus. Let's be refreshed in Jesus. Let's be redeployed by Jesus. He means to draw us toward Him and help us see more of Him in these days. And He will see us through it. He will pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Let me pray. So Lord, we're going to come now and eat and drink with you by your Spirit. And our prayer is that you would help us, even in this moment, turn from our idols. Lord, if there's brokenness and bitterness in this body, oh God, I pray that we would seek reconciliation. We'd repent. We'd forgive. We'd make things right. And God, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet turned to Jesus, would, would today be the day of salvation? Would they see your sovereignty leading them to this moment? Would they turn to Jesus and be saved? So Lord, help us turn from our idols. Help us live and be eager to maintain unity with one another and save souls and bring them into this blood-bought family. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.